My guest today is Elizabeth McCracken, whose new novel, The Hero of This Book, is the profound and poignant account of one writer's attempt to convey something of the irrepressible, indomitable, indefatigable and almost indescribable character of her recently deceased mother on the page. I should stress, as the narrator does repeatedly, and sometimes somewhat confusingly, that this is a novel and not a memoir. That's to say, neither a memoir by McCracken nor a memoir by the narrator, if you follow me. Although what exactly the difference is between each of the two forms and how each lends itself to the task at hand is also an important interrogation of the book. As is the question of memory, how it shifts and transforms, how it relates to time and place and our movement through both. It's a terrible old cliche to say that a book will make you laugh and cry, but the combination of the force of character of this matriarch and McCracken's precise and tender evocation of her certainly stirred both reactions from me. It might only be January, but I'd wager that the hero of this book is quite unlike anything else you'll read this year, a manifestation of crystalline uniqueness, much like the mother at its heart. I'm thrilled to say Elizabeth McCracken joins me to discuss it today. Elizabeth, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thanks, Adam. I'm so happy to be here. That makes the book sound so good. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I hope it only conveyed the, uh, the sort of a, a fraction of the uh, the pleasure and interest with which um, with which I read it. Um, I'd like to begin, I guess, slightly unusually, I suppose, with a little bit of sort of housekeeping, um, which is, I would like to know how you would like me to refer to the narrator, because um, I should say that she is unnamed uh, in the book. So so we don't have that to sort of uh, to, to, to hang on to. Um, and I also do fear that um, despite trying to be quite disciplined about it, I might end up referring to you at a few moments as I talk about her. So what would be your preference for how I should refer to her? And could you explain a little bit to our listeners why this is significant? Sure. Um, and I will say, despite what, what I say, I will also slip up and refer to the narrator as me sometimes, um, <laughs> quite a bit, especially if I'm talking about the mother, my mother, um, in the book. And that's partially because I can't be disingenuous about it. The, the book is about a mother who could only be my real life mother, a very mm -hmm. particular personality and um I just, I, I couldn't possibly pretend that I had made her up. Um, and mm -hmm. all the details about the mother are details about my mother. She's even, she's uh, the only person who gets a full name in the, in, in the entire book. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm pausing because the, the fact is, I don't even know quite how I think about it in my mind. I do think it's a novel. I do feel that way. And not just because when I was first talking about the book, I would often point to the fact that it says a novel on the cover and say, this is legally binding. And it's certainly <laughs> partly a novel because as the book itself discusses, my mother, my real life mother, hated the idea of memoirs, but especially memoirs about parents. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's a novel, not only because there are fictional aspects in it and there are entirely made up characters in it, but also because it was the only way I could write it. Um, it is sort of an interesting sort of narrowing for me that I could cut out parts of my life without feeling like I was being dishonest or unfair. And it's also, it may be a novel and not a memoir because... I didn't want to put that much of myself into it and it would feel dishonest not to put more of myself into a memoir. I also know that my mother, 
my actual mother would really like the idea in which I went, I'm going to write a book that is about you and almost not at all about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is um, a moment when um, the narrator, let's say, is discussing um, uh, about writing a novel or writing a memoir. And she says, you know, invent a single man and call your book a novel. Um, but the sentence that precedes that is very interesting because she says, perhaps you fear writing a memoir and then comma reasonably. <laughs> um, and I'm curious to know about what you see as the reasonable fear of writing a memoir. Oh, I think on a very basic level that every one of your relatives will fact check it. That certainly <laughs> was one of my fears. If I had written a novel, I really would have thought all of my um, all of my relatives, all of my cousins and my mother's cousins would want to fact check it. And there is yeah. something about saying, you know, you don't have to worry about whether this is accurate or not. Because I, not everybody feels this way about memoirs. I, I have written a memoir before this. I am invested in accuracy. I, there are plenty of memoirs that I love that I think aren't particularly. But for me, it's more important to be accurate in a novel. I mean, in a memoir than in a novel. And I also think it's it's hard to write memoirs and to attempt to put yourself on the page. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very reasonable fear. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, but there's also the sense of the sort of the, because of course you know we we sort of established that this this book sort of exists between the two forms and sort of plays with the two forms as a result of it. But there's also a moment where the narrator sort of regrets that let's say she couldn't write a straightforward novel about uh, her mother. So she says, I wish I could write a book like this about my mother, David Copperfield, except Jewish and disabled and female and an American wiseacre. But there's too much I don't know and I can't bear to make up. So there's this almost this sort of um, this sense like it's not just a case of, oh, you know, the, the memoir form is, you know, has these restrictions, but actually the sort of the traditional novel form is also in some way prohibited. Yeah, I think that's true. I I often tell my students that writing fiction is like calling up a um, late night psychiatric radio show. Those things still <laughs> exist and going, I have this friend with this problem. Um, and for this book, I wanted to be able to maintain I have this friend um, with this problem, that stance. But I also did think when you're writing about an actual person, if you're trying to do justice to them, you are always aware of how much you're leaving out. And um, I was even aware that if I w- was to write a book that was really about my mother, I would have to interview people mm-hmm. and um, and do my best to her biography. A lot of the people who could tell me things were dead mm-hmm. and my mother would like the idea of me interviewing some people and not others. And I wanted to, there's a line in the book about the narrator wanting to hoard her little portion of her mother. And in writing the book, that was really my motivation. I think I was not ready to write about my mother's deep history. Yeah. yeah, From I am born to the, to, to all the rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a um, there's there's a moment where where you write when people say to me, you should quote, you should write about your parents. I always said not when they're alive. And then you 
you specify not because they were awful, they were wonderful, but because they were odd and extraordinarily private. Um, completely coincidentally, the um, the previous podcast that I rec- recorded was an interview with the Scottish poet Don Patterson, who has just released uh, a memoir. And in at the beginning of that, he talks about how the death of his father was a, a spur to writing the book, or rather he'd started it before and then... Uh, didn't really get anywhere with it. And then his father died and then the the sort of the book came back to him. And I also think of someone like, you know, Carlo Vicknausgaard, whose whole project was kicked off by the death of his father. Do you think there's something about the the death or the, the imminent death, and we'll get onto this <laughs> in a moment, uh, of a parent that acts as a sort of a particular spur to... Uh, excavating memories about them and memories about uh, their lives. Yeah, I think I think there has to be. I mean, I think that's true about death in general, but particularly of parents, because in some ways you know them incredibly well. You've spent decades under the same roof or, you know, dec- good decade and a half. Um, and if you have good relationship you spend a lot of time talking to them if you have a bad relationship you've spent a lot of time thinking about them Mm -hmm. and and they're the shape that they leave when they leave the world seems Mm -hmm. immense to me yeah but there's also there is that sort of sense of and i think everybody i know um as we get older um if you're lucky enough to have as i was to have your parents alive until you're in middle age there's that feeling of being oh i'm now i'm now at the top of the generations mm-hmm. um I'm, I'm in charge now i have a i have a couple of elderly relatives but both my parents are dead now um and it is you know it's always terrifying and also freeing to be put in charge of the story mm-hmm. to be yeah, at the, yeah, yeah. the top of your family tree uh-huh and that that sense of kind of becoming in charge of the story. And that's why I was, I, I put a little caveat to my previous question was because there's also a moment where, where the narrator says that like, um, you know, it's not that the book starts being written, uh, at, you know, at the moment of death or after death, but actually sort of just before in a way that there's something about the sort of once the, I guess the unstoppable or normally unstoppable process of, of death gets, kicks in that at least, in in the experience written about here makes you know brings that that book to life in a way yeah i think i think all writers are well maybe that's not true i should never begin any sentence all writers <laughs> it's a fool's mission <laughs> i think there are there are some of us maybe we're even a minority who worry about seeming slightly cold-blooded mm-hmm. writing about somebody who is sick um or dying but I think many of us become writers because the only way we understand things is by converting it into sentences. Mm-hmm. That's certainly true for me, that mm-hmm. I begin to write about nearly everything as it happens or shortly afterwards, because that is the way I understand things. Mm-hmm. It's a translation that I do for myself. Mm. That's really interesting. And I, cause I think, cause I think, um, I'm just thinking about so my experience sometimes of of writing things. It's sort of it's there's a case of sort of maybe it's only sort of ten or twelve years later sometimes that I feel 
capable to sort of uh, to, to approach a subject, or at least if I've approached it Im- immediately and if I approach it a decade later, the direction from which it approached is, is, is approached feels fundamentally different. Yeah, I think you could write a different book sort of every month as mm-hmm. as you um, depart from the from the event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And on the on the question of, of of memory, broadly speak, like you said earlier, that uh, you felt if you were writing a sort of a straightforward declared memoir of your mother, then you would feel the need to, you know, to, to interview people and to 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 do research concerning your own memories. Was there a case of um, did did you did you seek to? Uh, let's say to, to fact check those, or was there something? Is it is there something sort of deeply personal about them that it's almost like it's the memory which is the the important thing rather than let's say the the external external objective facts? It's a great question, uh, it, and it's very much the latter. I I don't think I fact checked anything. I didn't look uh, at my notes. The, the book talks about the fact that the mother in the book and my actual mother had had a very serious illness years before. Mm -hmm. And I took notes then I didn't look at those because I wanted to write about that sense of memory. There's a list of facts about the mother towards the end of the book, just sort of, you know, things that she liked, things that she said. And they were, I really wrote them in the order that I remembered them. And even Mm -hmm. now, every now and then I think, I should have put that in, <laughs> but I also understand that it would have been false because it's, it's something that has just come up. Mm, yeah. 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 And actually at the moment, I want to come on to that idea of time and place and sort of moment shaping the book. But, but just before we do, there's one sentence um, that I'd, I'd like to sort of unpack a little bit more um, where you write, I've always hated the notion in life or in fiction that the human personality is a puzzle to be solved. Um, and I think that really resonated with me because I think there is an urge in in all of us, um, and maybe particularly today, I don't know, to sort of to to look for the the key to you know the thing that made somebody like they were, or the thing that you know um, will in some way make one's life better, or you know, our psychological state uh, more healthy. Particularly, I guess, as somebody who you know has who writes stories and often stories, you know, will, you know, have that tendency too to sort of, to, to, to solve their characters. Was it, was it something you had to resist in the writing of this to, I guess, in a way to, to, to look at your mother as a puzzle to be solved? Yeah, it was, it was. And there is, as the book says, there's one detail that does sort of go, Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, it doesn't solve the puzzle of the mother, but it's a it's a secret that gets revealed later in the lives of the characters. Um, and it's something, because I teach creative writing um, at the postgraduate level, and uh, students really love to do that thing where it's three-fourths of the way through or close to the end, you find out this terrible secret about somebody and you go, oh, um, yeah. And it's that sort of that question of a secret acting as the important mm-hmm. piece of information that feels false to me. Mm-hmm. People have secrets and they're interesting, but I think they illuminate the character of 
both people and, and fictional people in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. But I also in writing the book, and I think this has something to do with why the death of a parent um, is such a spur to people, is you just understand the tininess of the keyhole through which you have been looking at them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And almost, uh, yeah, it's probably a sort of an almost sort of, you wear as a child these blinkers, I guess, which are almost impossible or perhaps ultimately impossible to to remove. Yeah. Um, I think they have to be impossible to remove because then if you think of this as, as a parent as well, if you let your children keep those blinkers on all their lives until they're adults and you're an older adult, then when you're gone, you will have the sense that you didn't know your parent at mm. all, that they were walled off. And that's certainly, that's not how I feel about either of my parents. I feel like I uh-huh. did know them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, may, it puts me in mind of that um, sort of, I guess, mythological trope of sort of killing the parents in a way, like sort of the, um, you know, you there is, a, I guess, a moment in all of our lives and maybe in the progression to adulthood or at, at some point where there is that sort of psychological need to an extent to kill the idea of the parents so that you can you can see them as the the more complex human being that <laughs> that they are. This was the summer before the world stopped. We thought it was pretty bad, though in retrospect there was joy to be found. Above-ground monsters were everywhere, with terrible hair and red neckties. The monsters weren't in control of their powers. The hate crimes, mass shootings, heat waves, stupidity, certainty, flash floods, wildfires. But they had reach. Everyone talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Turns out we were supposed to. August 2019. I shouldn't be vague, though. That's my nature. Things felt dire, which now seems laughable. You could still unthinkingly go places. Myself, I'd gone to London, where a heat wave had bent train rails and shut down art exhibitions and turned the English into pink, panting mammals. I, pink, mammalian, panted alongside them. I was trying to decide what I thought about my life. On the internet, I'd found a small hotel in Clerkenwell, a neighborhood I hadn't heard of. Clarkenwell, the owner of the hotel clarified when I arrived, but I couldn't get the hang of deforming only the one E and kept calling it Clarkenwall. He was a gentle, blinky Englishman named Trevor, who might have been 30 and might have been 50. He had a shaved head, hoops in both ears. He wore espadrilles, long loose shorts, and a brown linen vest, which he surely called a waistcoat and surely pronounced waistcoat. Altogether, he looked like someone who was either a vegan or knew how to mindfully butcher a pig and use up every bit, snout and kidneys, trotters and tail. Perhaps you fear writing a memoir, reasonably. Invent a single man and call your book a novel. The freedom one fictional man grants you is immeasurable. Here for pleasure, Trevor asked, or is it work? Bit of both, I said finally, with an accidental English accent. Trevor smiled. His canines were obelisks. Come this way. You'll like it here, full of history. 
They used to hang people on the green. Wonderful, I answered. The usual feeling of having my fortune told came over me, as it did whenever I approached accommodation for the first time. Good, I was blessed. Bad, cursed. A short list of my minor obsessions. Hotel rooms, fortune tellers, coin-op machines. Embarrassing how much I refer to fortune telling in my life. By life, I mean writing. Not memoir. I am not a memoirist. The room at Trevor's was on the ground floor, a curse, but the photos on the website hadn't done justice to the green leather armchair or shown at all the little desk in the bay window, the old cast-iron stove set into the fireplace. Trevor's hand, as he gestured, was knuckly and a tremble. Cuckoo's original to the house, he said, Georgian. There would have been a whole family in this one room, just the two nights. Yes, I said. Alas. Alas is one of those things I said too often, a way to say no while presenting myself as helpless. He nodded. His eyes, like the chair, were oddly green. I'll leave you to it. The bathtub had a snub-nosed slipper tub and a toilet that flushed with a pole chain. At the bottom of the toilet bowl, in pale blue letters baked into the porcelain, were the words, Thomas Crapper, London, Limited. Such a world that had such toilets in it. Um, the, uh, the, the question of place and time is very important to the way that memories are evoked um, in this book. So um, you, you mentioned a few times that the sort of the, the period that this is uh, all taking place. So you talk about this was a summer before the world stopped. So we're talking, you know, just... Uh, pre-pandemic. And you write, uh, we thought it was pretty bad, though in retrospect, there was joy to be found. Above ground monsters were everywhere with terrible hair and red neckties. Um, also, some of the the, the the book takes place in London. And of course, this, you know, we had our own sort of uh, parallel political crisis in the UK with, with Brexit and everything like that. Did you feel that this was sort of it, there was something sort of inescapable in representing this that you had to kind of give give it a historical context like because the census and we'll come on to talk you know a little bit more about your your mother specifically in a minute but like there's there's in a way there's not that much of her character which feels tied to a particular time and yet this book very much exists in yeah the the these few years between i guess 20 sort of eight 2018 to 2020 yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's it, there's a practical reason, which is that I started writing it in the summer of 2019 when I was in London for a summer mm. with my family. But I also, it, it particularly felt because of the pandemic. And, you know, every fiction writer I know is going, what do we do? How much do you put it in? Do you ignore that the pandemic ever happened? Oh, um, if you're the sort of writer who writes things where the historical moment doesn't mean that much, how do you... How do you deal with it? And it's the sort of thing that at the very beginning of things feels impossible. I have, I remember talking to friends after um, the September 11th attacks in 2001. And we were like, we can't write fiction anymore was the first thing. And then you're like, but how do you write? And then you're like, oh yeah, you write fiction the way you always did. You get a little <laughs> perspective and it's absolutely fine. But I also, because I knew what year the 
book happened in, it felt important to acknowledge the pandemic in some way, even though none of it actually happens during during the pandemic. Um, and part of that is just because it's about a woman in her 80s. Mm-hmm. And while I was, I, I started in 2019 and then finished it in 2021, I think. And, you know, my mother was continually on my mind, also feeling sort of lucky because of the long period of time where if your elderly parent was dying in another state, there would be nothing that you could do about it. But I also did yeah. want to write about, I was actually in London. I mean, it refers to a heat wave um, and it refers to a monster in a red necktie. Um, and I was there when uh, Boris Johnson became prime minister in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I also, it's the first novel I've written that takes place in a, sh- part of it takes place in a short period of time. The, the, the narrator is going on a walk and that was sort of a pleasure that I didn't have to go back and look up what was happening on a day to hoping for historical mm-hmm. accuracy. I could just sort of left, let it drift into the book. Yeah. 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 And concerning the, the place itself. So um, we have, so you mentioned this kind of this visit to London in, in 2019 and the narrator is sort of moving Exactly, not exactly, she specifically says, actually not specifically moving in the footsteps, but sort of there are echoes of a visit that she has taken um, with her mother a few years, or yeah, yeah, a few years previously. And so London, in a way, seems to act as, I mean, aid memoir is probably a bit of a facile term, um, but there's also another sort of location which perhaps unsurprisingly has a similar effect, and that is the house where the narrator grew up in and where her parents lived um a lot of uh, uh, you know a lot of their lives and where she lived a lot of her life what is it do you think or, or do you think there is something about returning to a place where 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 memories took place that sort of that has a a sort of a, a transformative effect mm-hmm. on those memories do, or do, does does it just sort of excavate them or does it in some way put a new spin on them do you think I think it does put a new spin on them. Um, there's a there's a great essay by Colson Whitehead that was in the New York Times after uh, the September 11th attacks about New York and saying that you know that you're a New Yorker when you can talk about all the things that used to be on a street um, and that right. you're aware of them. And I think about that essay all the time when I'm I'm just moving through the world and I do think you know that that's life right you you walk down a street and you're you're accompanied by ghosts ghosts of businesses as well as people um and it's a entirely different experience than when you go someplace for the first mm-hmm. time and i and i do also think when i write fiction i so want to know what my characters are doing with their bodies at any given time that knowing the geography and the architecture is very mm. helpful to me um, to understand them better. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, it's, I find it quite interesting that the um, because one of the reasons that the the narrator returns to the uh, her childhood home is for the the estate sale. Um, so you know, every everything that uh, that she decided not to keep was 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 being sold off, and there's almost a 
as Olivia said, she, she doesn't expect this to affect her in, in some way. And it, it's such a curious thing because like as, a, as an idea of kind of returning to your, your childhood home and seeing all of this stuff that was around which you grew up being sold off seems to be on the face of it to me anyway, like quite a sort of overtly devastating experience. <laughs> and I just find it quite interesting and would be interested to hear you reflected about why you think the narrator sort of almost kind of goes into it as if, yeah, quite lightheartedly, not expecting it to affect her. And then of course, you know, it does affect her in ways she's not, uh, not expecting. I mean, I think and this is where I'm like pausing, like but the narrator, me, how do I talk about this? <laughs> If you, if one, I think has grown up in a house that has had a problem with objects mm. that has too much stuff in it, um, borderline hoarding, actual hoarding, uh, just people with an unwillingness to get rid of anything. The idea that you could allow somebody else to get rid of it for you is beautiful. You will, mm. you will, I notice I can just totally into the second person. That's my solution. Um, you will have spent decades of your life worrying about the problem of the house and all of the objects in it. And that there is a solution is just astonishing. That is how it was for me that I had been thinking about, Oh my gosh, my parents didn't like getting rid of things. And that includes all of the belongings of everybody they loved who died, whose stuff came to the house. Uh, a lot of the stuff in the estate sale in the book and the estate sale in my life um, were things that I had never seen before because they had been in boxes for years. So I knew sometimes I would look at, you know, a full set of 1930s China that was probably my grandmother's uh, wedding China and thought, that's a shame, but also... I cannot take it on. And the fact that, again, there's a line in the book that says that it was a peculiar endorsement of the parents' taste. Mm -hmm. I did find that. And it really, the moments that it bothered me were totally surprised me. And it was about entirely dumb stuff. And in some cases, things that I had, I had literally not seen for decades or ever. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's interesting this uh, because, of course, the, the household represents very much uh, the kind of, I guess, the combined spirit and combined life of um, the parents. And certainly the sort of the, the unit of your parents feature sort of periodically in this book. And yet you say um, about your father, who uh, had died a year, I think, a year and a half before your mother. You You say in a parenthesis in the book, I miss him. I'm sorry he doesn't fit in this book um is there it's, it's maybe a curious question but is is there a book to be written about sort of your parents as a unit which you think would be sort of fundamentally different to this book or do you think in sort of almost like when, when you write about them one or the other character will sort of pull the the spotlight in a way gosh that's an interesting question um, it's because the book is definitely, you know, from from its opening to the title to the cover, uh, I guess the cover in America, there's a little drawing of, of my mother. It's about my mother. Absolutely. And I also 
think that's partially because my father was wonderful and he was eccentric and he was quieter than my mother, but physically much larger. Um, but I am aware, you know, they were, they loved each other and they were married for more than 50 years. I haven't, yeah, I haven't exactly thought about this before. He, he died three and a half years before my mother. And in, in life I was aware and in book, the book, I think writing it, I was subconsciously aware of the ways that my mother actually had sort of made herself smaller to be part mm -hmm. of a marriage. And that though she really missed my father after his death, there was a way in which her, her life was also different in good ways. Not that mm -hmm. he held her back or would want to, you know, he was full of admiration for her and they had a very, um, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't sort of kept back by being a woman who had married in the 1950s and done traditional things, or I should say not much. There are ways in which she was. Um, so, yeah, I think I wanted, when I was writing the book, I think the portrait of my father is, is smaller partly because I wanted to write about the um, period of her life in which he wasn't there. He, he was smaller. And maybe at some point I'll write a story about both of my parents together because mm -hmm. it was a book says, you know, he was six foot three and 350 pounds or more. And my mother was about four foot 11 and tiny. They were hilarious. Every photograph uh, of them together is hilarious. You describe them as a sight gag, I think, at one moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> But this this is something which which is really interesting, and I think um, in a sense I think it's important for me to let you sort of set the terms by which we we speak about your mother, uh, because I mean you mentioned earlier that there is um, there is a particular moment where something is revealed, and um, and you know that this is all, all all connected, and I don't want to sort of I think one of the the beautiful things about this book is the way that your mother is kind of unveiled to an extent or, or rather we get to know her progressively throughout the book like it's not um she's just not like there at the beginning fully formed but we sort of we feel as a reader we um we develop a relationship with her but but it is clear that there is this i guess um even from the very beginning this sort of this physical tension there that there is you know that there's this this big personality that we that we encounter quite quickly, and yet there's there's something sort of yeah physically um, let's say awry. Um, now at a moment when you're writing about uh, writing about writing, in fact, and you say if you don't take your characters' bodies into account, your work is in danger of being populated by sentient, anguished helium balloons, uh, which I think is very true, and you find in a lot of writing. But I, I well, it also made me think that in the case of perhaps your mother, where there is this kind of this, uh, this physical element, a very particular physical element to consider. Is there, was there also the danger for you that if you went in too directly with the kind of, with your mother's body, that that would in some way overshadow the rest of the character that you wanted to, to get across to the reader? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think that, for the sake of this podcast, I can say my mother had cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. um, this wasn't a term I heard until later on. And I wanted to, I wanted to write about 
her as a human being sort of as close as I could to my childhood experience, which mm -hmm. is the physical fact in front of me, which is, and I think fairly early on, it says that my mother walked with canes when I was a child. And then it brings in that later in her life, she was on a motorized scooter. Um, my mother would say that her physical self was one of the least interesting things about her. And also, I think she knew, and it seems very clear to me, that it had everything to do with her personality, right. um, which I think is generally true of all of us, that our bodies have nothing to do with who we are and everything to do with who we are, the way that people interpret you when they see you on the street. And I, as much as possible, I wanted to write about who my mother was physically as a fact, but not that important of one and sort of mm -hmm. to, to build the image. I didn't want to say that it didn't, her body didn't matter to her or was, you know, there's a line in it saying she didn't transcend her body because I, you know, the way that, that people talk about human beings and characters with physical disabilities or any kind of disability is always, you know, can be so problematic and it's like, Oh, you transcend, or I never think of you as somebody with a disability or, or wanting that to know why somebody mm -hmm. looks different, which is, I think people with physical disabilities are continually answering questionnaires on the street mm -hmm. from, from total strangers. So yeah, I wanted I wanted to not start with that with her diagnosis, mm -hmm. but to start with her canes, which were such a feature yeah. of my childhood. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I didn't that, think anything that, about of them. I think when I was a kid, I just knew yeah, that she wanted yeah, yeah. canes. And and that's something. Um, so the line you just quoted about she didn't transcend her body. Uh, goes on. Um, it was just that her personality was more interesting, and I, I think there is is something which is um, often overlooked. I think when when I guess people um, who who don't have uh, disabilities sort of perhaps try to imagine what it might be like for somebody who does is this kind of this idea that the the disability itself is interesting to the person who has it. <laughs> uh, whereas if you're, if you're born with it and you've lived with it, and then I guess in a similar way, you mentioned the canes, like if you, you growing up with a mother with canes, in a sense, it's kind of, it, it shapes your view of her, but it's kind of, I assume perhaps to you as a kid, not that interesting either. It's just sort of a feature of your mother. Yeah, no, absolutely. Every now and then I think like one of my friends would come over and would want to borrow my one of my mother's canes to do a Charlie Chaplin impression. Mm. Um, right. And then I would sort of see them as objects in a different way again. Mm. Yeah, but they were just, that was, you know, everybody's mother walks in a certain way. That was the way my mother walked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's 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 also this moment when, um, and again, I'm, I'm not really sure, like it's, it's quite a, I want to talk about it, but it's also quite a powerful moment in the book when, when a, f a childhood friend uses a certain word about your mother which kind of has this effect of uh i mean you talk about the, the the 19th century awfulness of the word um but but it's not even so much the word but just the fact that 
that was a word that was being used to define your mother who because of the you know the parent child relationship isn't sort of is it's almost kind of indefinable in a way you kind of from within that that space you can't really put a word on it like that like my mother is x or my father is y it's just sort of yeah there's something sort of ineffable about it i suppose yeah i mean and i think certainly it was true of this childhood friend of mine I'm sure she doesn't remember it. My mother loved that story. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I think we're still friends on Facebook, uh, me and this childhood friend. Um, but it, she saw my mother. And again, I think this is quite common for people um, with disabilities as two things. Mm-hmm. My mother and then the disability is something that was separate, like mm-hmm. something that belonged to my mother, but wasn't my mother. Yeah, And... And I, again, I think generally people, that's one way that people see people with disabilities. Sometimes they just see the disability first and it eclipses that they can't imagine that it's not the most looming, important and interesting thing about a person. Um, but it was, it didn't seem, I, uh, I sometimes say like, you know, my, my mother came in one piece. She was just, mm-hmm. that's who she was. One piece, not divisible in any way. Hmm. And there's something, um, obviously, because you've you talked about this is the, uh, a lot of this book is about the the final few years of her life, like the the, the years after um, after your, your father has passed away. And, and it does go into the sort of their final years together too. Um, and one of the things I find like a most sort of profound experience as a reader is when one's own sort of uh, prejudices or preconceptions are challenged, but also to the point where you didn't actually realise you had these prejudices or preconceptions. And there's this moment um, where they, you know, they are, the the your, your parents are getting quite old and things are getting pretty precarious for them uh, in, in their home. And they get sort of, um, they get sort of help, uh, you know, care comes in. And there's this idea that, um, and and specifically, you know, you say when you're old, safety is overrated. And there was something, I suppose, because you know your your par- parents are perhaps being what might be, you know, dismissively called kind of irresponsible about their their safety at uh, certain ways. You know, they're not, uh, you know, accepting all of the help or perhaps you know moving to more sort of adapted accommodation. And yet, one thing that yeah really came across was, oh yeah, you know they're. There is a there is a risk here. In fact, there is a sort of like the the possibility that that will in some way uh, I don't know kind of I kind of clip clip your wings in a way in a like in quite a unhealthy way and sort of bring in bring a sort of a premature end to your existence as an autonomous self. Yeah, I mean, I, my parents were lucky, and my brother and I were lucky in that. Um, their minds were as sharp as ever, both my parents, when they died. And so they, even if we sometimes said, should you be making that decision? That doesn't seem like such a wise decision. <laughs> there was no question that they could make the decision. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think this idea that um, you, when you become old, you 
should move to a place where you can't be in any physical harm whatsoever mm. is sort of foolish and awful. Um, my mother herself would say, you get into a car every day and that, you know, for those of us who do, that is so much more dangerous that there are the dangers of old age. Many of them are just the ones that are suddenly visible and all along you've been surrounded by dangers that you don't see anymore. Like, like um, riding in cars. And I do think um yeah, it seems it seems awful not to do things just because they might be dangerous, including living in your own house if you can manage mm -hmm. it. I think yeah. we're I yeah, think yeah, yeah. parents of elderly parents are trained to think, what if you fall? And it says this in the, the book, um, my mother fell all the time, all her life. You know, she's like, Well, you know. I, I, I hope I don't, but I'd rather fall where I want to be than be kept absolutely safe where I don't want to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess that's another one of those moments where the sort of um, you have the, the personality being one thing and the body being another thing, but in fact, them being sort of locked together, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true that we also think of older people as somehow being the frail body is somehow not in some ways, not even their own body anymore, but something that, mm -hmm. that uh, must be protected by outside forces. Yeah. 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 Um, we're, we're coming to, to the end of our time. And I, I would like to return to a little bit what we began with at the beginning, which is the idea of, I suppose your, yours or the narrator's uh, reflections <laughs> on writing um, in the book, because I got the sense as a reader that, um, you know, I don't want to sort of lapse into cliche here, but there was almost a sort of a, that as, as, as a writer, you slash the narrator went on kind of a journey with this book as well. Like it sort of, it felt that it sort of um, excavated certain things about the, the process of writing, what was important to you about writing, what different forms could afford um, somebody who was trying to engage with certain certain things in their life would was that something that you you felt and could you talk a little bit about how perhaps writing this book has changed you as a writer or maybe as a person you know i think i think you're you're absolutely right um the the first version of this book was going to be a novel with notes with tons of footnotes or endnotes and i i wrote a a lot um and i couldn't quite figure out how oh, are they going to be footnotes are they going to be marginalia are they going to be are they going to be end notes and all there was all of the writing stuff was originally in the end notes there's a line in the book that says i never meant to write a novel about a writer um and that's like one of the things that came in last because i was like damn it when i realized <laughs> that that the notes weren't working like i couldn't figure out how to make it a an enjoyable reading experience mm. um yeah the and the notes were written in an incredibly cranky voice which is probably my true <laughs> voice especially when i'm talking about <laughs> writing um and i i gave it to um friends to read and they said yeah it's just it's not really not quite working 
And so I got rid of 80% of it, or maybe more like 90 or 95% of it. And anything that's actually about writing came into the narrative at the very end, including some of my mm. favorite parts of the book. I, I wrote to, to make it make sense. And I do think that it's, it's, as you say, it was, it was a bit of a journey for me figuring out how to write the book and that I was resistant to putting any of myself in the main narrative in the first draft and then understood that it had to be there, that it made sense for the main character to be a writer. And also for me, when I sort of thought about it as being as, as a writer, my, my, one of my great weaknesses is that I do like to be clever and I often have to have my readers say, that's a bit clever. Um, <laughs> but there's a bit of one of the things that there were things that I could do that were, that felt a little clever that I liked. Like the, there's an epigraph um, from an Elizabeth Bishop poem in which it says, um, you are, you, you are an Elizabeth. And mm -hmm. I, that pleased me very much that I could sort of go, see, if you read the epigraph, then you are really wondering whether this, the narrator does have the same name as the writer. Um, mm -hmm. And that somehow made it more palatable to me. I don't uh -huh. know. I, I had to, you could call it a journey, but really writing the book was a way of tricking myself into writing the book that I had to write, sort of sidle in sideways to do it. Uh -huh. Yes. Which is true. Well, I'm, ex like. I'm extraordinarily glad you did sidle in sideways because it is such a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful read. Um, that is all we've got time for. Um, the hero of this book is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company. Come and get your copy. It's also available from our website. Uh, we do ship around the world. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Elizabeth McCracken, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, for me too. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>